Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside. And I have an author on today that I've been wanting to connect with for so long. I just absolutely loved his book, The Big Leap. I've read it twice. I got a bunch of notes on it. Gay Hendricks, welcome. Thanks, Jenny. Nice being with you. Yeah, and you have a new book coming out as well, coming in February. Say the title again. It's called Your Big Leap Year. It's 365 days of big leaps. It's amazing. So here's how I came across your book. I had a friend who bought it for a friend and they were talking about it. And I just thought, well, that sounds like the most fascinating book ever. It really is a life-changing book. The Big Leap, Conquer Your Hidden Fear and Take Life to the Next Level. I think it's a book that everyone could relate to, a great one for parents as they're raising their kids to teach about these things. One of the main concepts is that we have this upper limit of what we sort of feel like we can handle positively, positive things. And then when we breach it, we subconsciously pull it back down. Can you tell us how you came across this? And you know, how did you start researching this topic? Well, first, I noticed it in myself. There's an old Turkish saying that uh, if a bald man finds a cure, he will surely use it first on himself. And so once I discovered the upper limit, well, let me give you a the first time it happened to me, I didn't know what to call it mm-hmm. because I hadn't really written the big leap yet. But the first time I noticed it was actually 50 years ago. I was overweight and I lost 35 pounds. I went on a new diet and I lost 35 pounds in a month and I was feeling great. I still had a ways to go, but I was really feeling great and I was walking down the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I looked over to my left and I saw a family of four in an ice cream store, Brigham's Ice Cream. I don't know if it's still there or not, but that at the time was kind of like the Rolls Royce ice cream store in Cambridge. And there was this family eating a giant ice cream sundae, like three different flavors of ice Mm -hmm. creams and bananas and everything. And I went in, it was like I went into a trance and I ordered a whole one for myself and I ate it <laughs> down to the very last drop in about 20 minutes. And for about 20 minutes, while the sugar high was racing through me, I felt like a jillion dollars, you know, wow. But then I was walking down the street afterwards. And I got such a stomach ache that I actually doubled over on the street. Mm. And people were saying, are, are you okay, sir? And oh, boy, was I not okay. I had gone, you know, like two minutes before I saw the ice cream, I was feeling so great. Energy was flowing through my body. And I was walking down the street. And I was on my way to the Harvard bookstore to buy a book that I wanted. So then all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, I'm doubled over on the street. Why would I do a thing like that? And that was the first glimmer for me of the upper limit problem. But now roll the clock forward a whole bunch of years. I lost the weight and everything. When I was finishing my PhD at Stanford, one day I was feeling really good. Everything was going great in my work. And I took my daughter to where she was going to go to sleepaway camp for the first time, three days for the first time in her life. She was six years old. She was very excited about it. I was a nervous wreck. 
about it because, well, anyway, I'll tell you what happened. I kept obsessing all morning on, oh, is Amanda okay? Is she feeling lonely at the camp? I had this image of her sitting by herself over in the corners, too shy to introduce herself. All these just came out of my head. And so I called the director of the camp, who was this lovely woman, and she listened. I said, I just wanted to make sure Amanda is okay. I was worried about her being lonely. This is her first time away. And the woman was so kindly. She said, well, Dr. Hendricks, just to put your mind at ease, two things. One is you're the third parent that's called me this morning with similar concerns. And the truth is that I can see Amanda out on the field now, and she's kicking soccer balls around with a bunch of the other girls that are doing soccer practice. Hmm. And so that was the reality of what was going on. Yeah. Amanda having fun on a soccer field. In my mind, Amanda sitting alone over on the corner, not having anybody to speak to. So I, I sat there in my office and I said, why would I do that? Why would I suddenly? And then it occurred to me, wow, it's as if I have an allergy to feeling good. So that when I get to a certain point, I knock myself back down into the familiar zone. And I was so astonished. I remember just kind of reeling around my office, applying that to every area of my life. I realized like with my girlfriend at the time, we'd get along great for three weeks. And then something would happen. And it would, it would kind of like come out of nowhere almost. And then suddenly we'd be at odds and then it would take us a week of fighting to get back into harmony. And then it would take us another week to get over. The, you know. So I saw the upper limit problem was in my relationships too. So that's the very beginning of when I first started talking about this with my clients. And I had a good break at the time because I was at Stanford and in Palo Alto, where the beginnings of Silicon Valley were already beginning to be put into place. Mm-hmm. Hewlett Packard was there. Apple wasn't there yet, but IBM, all, all the, the company, Intel. So mm-hmm. all the companies that are now household names were just beginning. And I ended up counseling quite a few of their high-level executives because they would come over to Stanford to the counseling center that I worked because it had a good reputation for being a, a place you could get great therapy. <laughs> As I worked with these high-level executives, I saw that they did the same thing. They would have a big breakthrough at work and then go home and get into a blazer of a fight with wife and family or Mm -hmm. husband and family. That's the long-winded story of how the upper limit problem first got into my awareness. Wow. And to realize that most people are probably dealing with that. Is that what you would say? Yes. That the majority of people do it. Absolutely. Because like in The Big Leap, you you showed the book, The Big Leap a few minutes ago, I uncovered in working with people several main fears that drive the upper limit problem. And I could almost predict when a person would start telling me his story or her story, which one of these fears it was that had a grip on them. Because a big fear that human beings carry around, not all of us, but a lot of us, is a fear that we're fundamentally flawed in some way, that I'm the wrong skin color, or I don't have enough smarts, or I'm the wrong body type, or whatever it is. We've been on Oprah several times, and she will tell you stories about all the things that she had to go through. She was really uncovered one layer of herself after the other to get to this 
glowing essence being that bless her heart, she still is today. Mm -hmm. I would imagine. So I had never heard of this until I read your book. And I feel like it's a book that completely changes your life. It's so eye-opening just from being aware, just the awareness. And then you start to notice it in your own life. Even like I said, I mean, this is our third attempt <laughs> to connect. And then I was late and I almost missed you, which that rarely happens. And so you just start to see it a lot in your life. No, it would be it's great. You got a great story to tell. Now you did an upper limit problem with the upper limits guy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, it happened right here. But when people first notice it, they first notice that they're self sabotaging. What is the first steps of advice that you would give to a person who is just realizing? Oh, wow. Yes, I absolutely do this. The first piece of advice is to begin now that you've broken through and begin to notice it, begin to notice how it disseminates through the rest of your life. Begin to look at upper limits in your relationships. Begin to look at upper limits with your health, because that's one of the biggest areas. You know, like my sabotaging my diet is just one thing, but a person will make a big commitment to getting more exercise and then will injure themselves on day two. You know, something that gives you the excuse of drawing back. Or one of my clients, a very high level, powerful executive woman, but still had a residual fear of public speaking. She mm. was okay with sitting around, you know, with 12 people in the boardroom. But when she was asked to give a speech at the big national convention, I was working with her and I actually invited her to go to a group that teaches public speaking, you know, just mm -hmm. Toastmasters. They meet every week and everybody gives a little speech, I guess. Frankly, I've sent people to it, but I've never actually been to one. But I think what happens is people give short speeches and they get feedback on it and they gradually get desensitized. Well, my client did that and was coming along beautifully. And then on the morning she was supposed to give her big speech to the national convention, I get an early morning call. And she's got a sore throat and sounds like she's coming down with laryngitis. Now, in a situation like that, remember Freud saying, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. It's not a whatever you're projecting onto it. But, you know, sometimes a sore throat is just a sore throat. You caught a bug. But isn't it interesting that the timing of it would be on the day of the big speech? And so fortunately, she had my cell phone number, God bless her. And, uh, didn't mind punching me up at 6.15 in the morning. And I talked her through it in the following way. I just had her own, again, her commitment. Oh, my commitment is to becoming a very clear public speaker, no matter what the audience size. And so I had her reaffirm her commitment. And I had her acknowledge the upper limit problem. Oh, I see. I'm creating a sore throat out of my fear of outshining other people. She had this deep fear. That's another one of the big three or four fears that plague us is the fear of outshining other people. Frequently, people have grown up in a family whether they were number two or number three and didn't get a chance to really shine. Maybe there was a golden girl or a golden boy in the family that got a lot of the attention. But a lot of us have pocketed down inside ourselves this old fear of, if I really let my light shine, it'll steal light from other people. 
And I'm here to tell you, after sitting down with 20,000 people over the last 52 years, that that's not true. The more you shine your light, the more it gives other people the space to shine theirs. So the first thing you do is just acknowledge how the upper limit problem spreads through your life, begin to notice it. The second thing to do is begin to own the fear that's Mm -hmm. underneath it. Look for which one of those, and there's not many of them. You can find them all in whatever chapter that is in the big leap. But Mm -hmm. basically, there's a fear of being fundamentally flawed. There's a fear of outshining. That's probably number two. Number three is probably what here at the Hendricks Institute we call abandonment and disloyalty. It's not you getting abandoned. It's your fear of abandoning other people and leaving them behind as you become more self-aware and occupy more of yourself. Mm -hmm. That becomes a big problem for a lot of people that have grown up in real tight families too, because they'll have a breakthrough and then it'll almost be like they're ashamed of being in this new space, you know, because everybody else isn't. And so that's a big one for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And they try and bring it back down. Yeah. They do things to bring it back down. It's so fascinating. I've been told by uh, my uh, niece who lives over in Maryland, where they grow and eat a lot of crabs, that if you put crabs in a bucket, if one of them tries to get out, the rest of the crabs will pull it back in. I don't vouch for that, but that's what she said, maybe it's a thing and I didn't know about it, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. If you go to a higher level of awareness, or if you go to a higher level of fame, you know, like I was just counseling a very famous singer the other day. And, you know, it's like, he's been famous now for 40 years. But every time he goes out into the world again, he's on tour this summer. Every time he does it, people in his family (laughs) seem to say, Oh, yeah, I have a famous cousin. Let me see if I can borrow some money from him. <laughs> you know, and so other people kind of like try to pull you back down. So I know that happens. And I think it's true in a way that I started writing books when I was a university professor at the University of Colorado. And I basically published one a year for the first four or five years I was there. And I remember significantly getting treated differently by members of the faculty that would make little sarcastic remarks, you know, and that kind of thing that escalated the more prominent I got. Wow. And so I think that happens for a lot of people that achieve Mm -hmm. some prominence. I love learning from you because like you said, when you said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but you have seen, you said 20,000 people, you're seeing this constantly. You're seeing it the sore throat, the this happens, the that happens. And so you're seeing that it's not just a single person thing. It's a thing that's happening for the whole of humanity. So we need to be paying attention to it. What about the fear of our own potential? So I related to, like I used to play in high school, we just with some friends, we would play sand volleyball. And I wasn't sure if I was good at it or not. So I would just goof around and I wouldn't try because then you don't really know if you're good or bad. You don't have to to deal with it. You don't have to face that. Where does this come in? Oh, here's what I, here's actually, here's my question. How hard should we try? I, it's kind of a weird oh, question. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not an advocate of trying hard. I'm an advocate of doing passionately, you know, so there's a big difference between trying hard 
and doing acting passionately. Mm -hmm. One comes from fear and one doesn't. When you're playing passionately full out in life, it's not coming from fear. It draws on a different source. But if I'm trying hard, it's because I'm trying to prove something. Or, you know, like I remember my brother was eight years older than I am. And when I was a kid, I would see him doing high school homework. He always sat in this particular chair with this particular light on. And he would be, you know, like his forehead and everything. And I got the impression somehow that things like trigonometry and geometry were hard work because it made my brother so, you know, Mm-hmm. He would have probably done that over a ham sandwich or a cup of cocoa. You know, it didn't mm-hmm. matter. Later on in life, I realized that he's just a super critical guy. So when I got to high school and started taking these courses, I sat there. And one day I'm realizing I'm wrinkling my brow and everything as I'm working through algebra. I realized, wait a minute, why am I doing this? This is not hard. Oh. I just do the thing. And I realized I'd copied my brother in so many ways that I had just taken on his body mannerisms. Well, that's mm-hmm. when I began to work on smoothing out my uh, brow, which I'm still trying to do at age 78. Well, that's a fantastic answer. You shouldn't try hard. Just do it passionately. Thank you. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the zone of excellence versus the zone of genius. Mm. So the zone of excellence sounds good. Sounds like it'd be great, but really we should be living in the zone of genius. Can you tell us the difference between the two? Yes. The zone of excellence is you're doing things well. You're getting good feedback. People are giving you raises. When you walk into the room, people smile. Life is good in the zone of excellence. And bless you if you found that, because to get there, you have to get through those other two zones called the zone of incompetence and the zone of competence, even to get to the zone of excellence. But blessings to you if you found something you're good at and people pay you for maybe and people give you rewards when you're doing it well. And I can guarantee you because of those 20,000 people you mentioned, many of whom were executives and companies, when people are in their zone of excellence, it leaves something out that's essential for high-level growth people. And maybe for everybody, but it just happens that I work a lot with executives and folks like that. What I'm getting at here is that everybody, no matter what level of functioning you're at, have these upper limits and have places in yourself that are gaps that need to be filled. And one of the big gaps is Am I doing what I most love to do? I advocate that question for everybody. Am I doing what I most love to do? And it has a powerful effect. I know it certainly did with me because once I started asking myself that, I started doing more of what I most love to do. So that was payoff number one. Payoff number two is sort of the flip side of that. I started being able to say no to things that were in my zone of competence or zone of income or even zone of excellence to be able eventually to say, no, I'm really good at that, but I don't want to do that anymore. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. 
Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my Vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessies Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chop's hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com outside120 code outside 120 because you know once you have like i wrote my first book which was a hit when i was 28 years old and then when i was 30 years old they came back and said hey that was you know we made money on that i want you to write another one just like it (laughs) 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 and i said well if i write another one just like it is anybody gonna buy it and uh Anyway, they had a different opinion about it. So they hired me for much more money to write a second one. And I wrote, like my first one's called The Centering Book. So then I wrote The Second Centering Book. And it was a big hit too. And then I realized, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> am I trapped in this, uh, uh, what do you call it? A um, One of those little wheels. The hamster rats, wheel. <laughs> hamster wheel, yeah. Am I trapped in a hamster wheel of success? But, uh, you know, the money was great and everything, but I wanted to reinvent myself. And, you know, lot, lots of friends of mine, like I remember I was in my office one day, still at Stanford, when um, I got an, a manuscript written by an up and coming author. It was his first book, a guy named Jack Canfield. Mm-hmm. And this is long before Chicken Soup for the Soul or anything. And it was called 100 Ways to Raise Self-Concept in the Classroom. And Prentice Hall, the publisher, sent it to me and asked me to evaluate it for the grand sum of 50 bucks in those days. They would pay you to evaluate a manuscript if you were a professor or something. Mm -hmm. And I actually wrote them back and I said, 
you know, I'm jealous. I wish I'd written this book. I think it's going to be an instant classic. And it was. And for many years, Jack was known as the self-concept guy, you know, that, mm-hmm. and I was the centering guy. So whenever there would be an ed- education conference, they would always hire one or both of us sometimes. So I crossed paths with him constantly. So I was shocked one day because I thought he was the education guy. I'm in a bookstore and I see a thing called Chicken Soup for the Soul with Jack Canfield and Mark Hansen's name on it. And um, I had no idea he was into that sort of thing. So anyway, there's an urge to reinvent ourselves always as high functioning people. So don't be surprised Jenny, as you get really, really good at this whole podcasting thing, if suddenly you saw you want to make some little different change in the whole thing that takes you more into your genius zone, because the genius zone is not a one-time only experience. It's a place you get used to living. So you gradually accustom yourself to doing more of what you most love to do and saying no to what you don't like to do then gradually, 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 that takes over until you're a walking yes to your genius. And what happens is inevitably, people start giving you more things that are appropriate to the genius level. Wow. Because you're putting out that signal, you're putting out that vibration or whatever you want to call it, that here I am, I'm available for genius. That's the vibe you're putting out. It's a good one. I love that the book is all about these small steps. You say, mount a gentle but unstoppable offensive against the conditioning that we don't deserve full success. And then you talk about just moment by moment, second by second, minutes by minutes, savor your success. But this is a really big thing, isn't it, Gay, that people do not savor their success and they don't sit with their good feelings. It's so strange. I remember, I think it was Earl Nightingale uh, had an essay many years ago called The Strangest Secret about how human beings will talk over and talk about the achievements of other people, but won't do that for themselves. It is a strange secret, actually. I, I don't know exactly where that comes from. Maybe it's because human beings have been facing horrendous adversity for millions of years And, you know, just over the past, whatever it is, years of human history, thousands of years, five, 10,000 years of human history, I mean, imagine the incredible adversity people had to deal with. And I think it equips us with a nervous system that's good at dealing with adversity and Mm -hmm. not good yet at dealing with things going well. And so that's why you're talking about the need for savoring. And that's so important. Henry Ford, when the first Model T rolled off the assembly line, he got out his stopwatch and I forget it, he allowed 60 seconds, I think it was, for celebration. And then clicked the watch and everybody was back to work again. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, if I just made the first car off the assembly line, the one that wasn't hand built, is obviously the thing of the future. I'd put on some music and have 20 minutes of ecstatic dance in the factory. You know, <laughs> I'd really want to revel in that. But good old Henry, that's why he's, he's a lot richer than I am, I guess. <laughs> that's what we'll do when your next book comes out. 20 minutes of ecstatic dance. <laughs> Come February, <laughs> your big leap year. So I've never read these things before, Gay. Do you find that most people say that? Like, I've never read 
these statements are so huge. Nurture your capacity for positive feelings. Nurture your capacity for positive feelings. Feel good about the love you have in your life. Like all of these things, how can we tolerate? Is it such an interesting phrase to tolerate longer periods of success and feeling good? I never heard any of this. Well, I never saw it either until I uh, snatched it out of the uh, creative juices of the air and uh, wrote it down. I'd never found it anywhere else. Uh, now I think there are people who have done research on that and everything that you can probably find. But, you know, a lot of big scientific breakthroughs are done kind of in the laboratory of your own head or just aren't done in the laboratory, like uh, the discovery of the structure of the DNA molecule. You know, if you read James Watson's incredible book, The Double Helix, it was never in the laboratory. He and Francis Crick would go out on the beach and wander around and just bat ideas around. And that was the context one day where one of them said, oh, it's a double helix. Where did that come from? It didn't come from looking through a microscope. And uh, Fun Kekula's famous understanding of the benzene ring, which was the greatest single leap forward in chemistry in the 19th century and is responsible for many of the things that are in our world today, he was trying to figure it out and he dozed off and he saw a snake eating its own tail. And he realized that was the structure of the benzene ring. And nobody had been able to figure that out before. It's almost like when we're not trying hard is when the juice comes through. When you say, okay, I'm open, I'm available like Einstein in his notebooks, talked about wondering about a particular physics problem for 27 straight years. He wondered about it every day. He uh -huh. was just getting it out and fluffing it and wondering about it. Finally, on year 27, oh, I see how that works. That's how we human beings ought to go about solving our problems. Unbelievable. Uh, Gay, we have a lot of moms on, that listen to this podcast. And one of the things that you talk about in The Big Leap so great for parents to read, and especially mothers, I think, as you talk about worry. And that worry and criticism and blame can all be addictions. So how do we get rid of those addictions to those things? Well, the first step is commitment. You have to get your mind and your heart and your spirit all aligned around the commitment that you want to eliminate blame and criticism for your relationships. And you have to take it on. Well, you know, if you think of a common addiction where commitment is required, look at Alcoholics Anonymous, like my buddy Jim, who's uh, had uh, 19 years of uh, sobriety now. His life changed, he said, the moment he got up there in front of that group for the first time and said, my name's Jim and I'm an alcoholic because it was calling it the way it was. He was standing up there. Like he said, the day before, if you said, Jim, are you an alcoholic? He would say, I drink, but I can handle it. Mm. Ignoring the fact that he'd been blacked out for two weeks. You know, it's mm -hmm. like a, another uh, a person that used to work for us as a seminar leader. Her husband was a chain smoker. And finally, a catastrophic thing happened one day and he ended up in the hospital and she was out of town. She rushed back, got there in the afternoon and he was in the hospital. So the doctor came in and, you know, said something casual, like, you know, it's odd for 
him to be in here with an illness like that and he doesn't smoke. And <laughs> my friend said, what? He changed smokes all day long. And the doctor said, oh, I asked him if he didn't smoke, if he smoked. And he said, no, because he hadn't smoked that day. You know, and so for him, he was a reformed smoker. <laughs> anyway, bless his heart. He got better and got out of it. And, uh, you know, the, one of the characteristics of addiction is people lie. That is, in fact, I would say one of the central features of addicts is all addicts lie. And if you want to discover what you're addicted to, simply look at what you lie about. Okay, now everybody send me 5,000 furious emails on uh, Instagram and all that. Uh, but uh, I've been saying that now for close to 50 years, and nobody's proven me wrong yet. Hmm. So go looking for the things you hesitate to tell the truth about. Or, hmm. you know, is it that you hesitate to tell the truth about how much you spend on X, Y, and Z? Um, how much you spend your time worrying Worrying. Yes, worry is one of the main upper limits problems, by the way, because if you think about it, anything you've worried about a few times and you haven't done anything about to change it, that's just mental stress unwinding itself. It doesn't have anything to do with reality. Mm. You know, you're just using it to make yourself feel miserable. A lot of people think if if I can make myself feel miserable enough, I'll finally get around to changing the thing that makes me miserable. I've not found that to be true. What I have found by contrast is the moment you can love yourself for that thing, whatever it is, the pulling of the slot machine lever or the eating the ice cream sundae or the whatever it is, or the sitting on the couch and watching prices Right rather than going out for a walk, <laughs> those kinds of things, those different kinds of addictions you know, they are really potent addictions and they require major commitment. Oh. Like that standing up in the front of the room, you know, and saying, I'm an oh. alcoholic. I'm so big a believer in transparency oh. that the moment you can be transparent about your upper limits problems. Oh, there I go again, giving myself a sore throat on the day I'm giving a speech. <sighs> ah, oh. 10 seconds is a good amount of time to handle an upper limit problem, not 10 years. I'm literally looking at my paper right now and the quote is here. It says it only takes 10 seconds to locate and acknowledge a feeling in your body, such as sadness or fear. That's the power in the book is that we can make major changes with small adjustments. It's incredible. You say I had the power to quit pressing the misery button and just spotting your worry thoughts. Oh, what was this thing about when you're worrying, look for a positive new emergence that's trying to happen? Well, see, I think a lot of us, what triggers our upper limit problem is that there's something trying to break through, some new positive thing. And we're also afraid about it. Mm -hmm. See, because one of the things that happens in life is most of us are afraid of living in our genius zone because we're wondering, am I still going to be able to support myself? Am I going to lose my excellence? See, I've not found it to be in any way true. You open up your genius zone and you keep your excellence zone at the same time until you no longer need it or want it. Mm -hmm. You know, there will be a certain time in your life when you maybe want to live in your genius zone full time. That really 
is a challenge because you've got to then say no, what I call an enlightened no, not just a reflexive no, to whatever is offered to you in your excellence zone. Hmm. I get people offering me things all the time, opportunities to co-author a book or opportunities to make money by endorsing something or something like that. And I always love to savor and try on those things because Hmm. I've found that about nine times out of 10, it would lock me into my zone of excellence rather than enhancing my zone of genius. <laughs> I got fascinating. I got offered the opportunity to uh, be the spokesman for some kind of candy bar. What was it? It was a, it was some new European candy bar that was. Oh, it was Moncherie chocolate covered cherries. I think it was something like that. But anyway, to make a long story short, it was it was a chocolate company read my book, learning to love yourself. Mm -hmm. And some bright person in the advertising department says, hey, let's get the learning to love yourself guy to talk about the best way to learn to love yourself is by eating (laughs) our chocolates. Great idea, everybody. And so that's the idea that reached me, you know, one day I get a call from, <laughs> say, how does $10,000 sound to you to be a spokesperson for our chocolate? And I said, well, why me? I actually remember I was sitting in my car having this conversation and I had gotten into my car and the phone rang. It was somebody from this ad agency. And I said, well, why me? And they said, oh, because of learning to love yourself is such a hot book right now. And I said, so the premise is learning to love yourself by eating chocolate. (laughs) That's exactly it. You've got it. You've got the concept. uh, You're hired. So so, um, I don't know. To my own credit or discredit, you can be the judge of that. I said, you know, I think I'll let somebody else be the spokesperson for that one. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, anyway, Bless them all. I hope their chocolate was a resounding success. And, you know, quite frankly, if somebody's going to tempt me to eat a piece of chocolate, it would be with a nice Godiva chocolate covered cherry. You know, that would probably be my number one thing. So I can't say I wasn't tempted there for a few minutes. You know, I'm picturing boxes of chocolate covered cherries arriving at my house. You know, I love that idea of trying it on, though. Just give it a minute, see how it feels like it fits. And that sometimes, or a lot of the times, You're saying no because it's not in your zone of genius. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily And that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free 
one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash 1000 hours. I really loved the end of this book, Gay, and I always make it to the end. My husband sometimes says, do you really have to make it to the end every time? Like, don't you have enough material if you just read part of it? <laughs> but some of the best parts of books are right at the very end. And I loved your appendix. Because I would imagine that some people skip an appendix completely. But this appendix is about your entrepreneurial ventures as a child. <laughs> I adored it. Can you tell us about, well, you had a couple that failed. <laughs> yes. And then the watermelon thing is incredible. Oh, yeah. Um, I forgot to ask you, what part of the world do you live in, Jenny? I live in Michigan. Oh, okay, Michigan. Um, I grew up in Florida, in mm-hmm. central Florida. And the two main crops there are watermelons and citrus, you know, grapefruit mm-hmm. and oranges. And my family was on the citrus side of things. And my mother grew watermelons one year when I was a kid. But anyway, uh, to make a long story short, it was watermelon territory. And my next door neighbor, Mr. Lewin, was a watermelon broker. But he always kept a bunch of watermelons in his garage. It was, you know, uh, not out in the sun. They're shady, you know, in his garage. So mm -hmm. you could always go get a watermelon from Mr. Uh, Lewin for 15 cents. And the, the going price of watermelons at that time was about a quarter for mm-hmm. a good sized watermelon, different times. So I got the idea one day of buying several watermelons from Mr. Lewin and lugging them down the hill to the highway, Highway 27, which at the time there was no interstate highway through Florida. Mm-hmm. So you either had to go down the coast or down the middle. Mm-hmm. And so people went down the middle on Highway 27. And so it was very trafficked, especially with people coming in from the north. And I figured, well, I'll go down and sell them watermelons for the going price of 25 cents a piece. At the end of the day, if I sell four or five watermelons, I've got, you know, 50 cents in my pocket, which was big bucks for a 10-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. And at the time, gas cost 25 cents a gallon. So the whole scale was different. 50 cents would buy me a trip to the movies, a large Coke, a popcorn and a candy bar and still have 20 cents left over. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh nickel for a soft drink, dime for popcorn, dime for, you know, so uh, mm-hmm. 
different times. So that was my first genius move there. But then I ran into a problem. I went down, I, I bought the watermelon, handed over my 60 cents to Mr. Lewin, went down the hill. And all day long, I'm lifting watermelon up to show people going by. Nobody stopped. Mm. And I had to lug the watermelons with my little red wagon one at a time back up the hill. <laughs> so it was, it was a sweaty day's work. But then that night, I was puzzling over, hmm, what could I do that would really make those cars stop? Then I realized, oh, geez, slice the watermelon up in eighths. Everybody's got a nice big slice, charge a nickel a slice, and then I'm selling the melons for 40 cents a piece. That's like millionaire territory. <laughs> and so that was my entrepreneurial breakthrough. Instead of giving up, I changed the channel a little bit. I came up with a genius level elaboration of you know, an excellence level idea. Mm -hmm. And so the next day I'm down there holding and scarcely get them up. People would stop with a family of four, buy four watermelon slices and then a watermelon, a whole one to go, you know, so it changed everything. And I remember Mr. Lewin and I uh, <laughs> on our hands and knees, counting out $3.75 worth of nickels, you know, because people had given me a, a nickel a piece, $3.75 to a 10-year-old Florida hit kid. Man, that was something else. And that got me started also in coin collecting, which I was an avid coin collector because I had all those coins coming in and I could see at a glance, I knew a little bit about coin collecting. I'd bought the book and I knew some of those were worth more than a nickel, you know, so that was an automatic thing. So I turned it into that and eventually sold my coin collection for quite a lot of money when I was a teenager. Wow, Gay. I think that I read a lot and I think that was one of my favorite sentences in all the books that I've read was when you said nothing has quite equaled the pure joy of seeing all of those nickels spread out on the floor. What an impactful story and an impactful moment. And even that when you said that night I had a revelation, even just that little phrase, it's like you have to try stuff in order to have the opportunity to get the revelation. And you said your lemonade business didn't work. <laughs> you tried other <laughs> yeah. things. The ice melted. <laughs> oh, for, don't don't launch a lemonade stand in Central Florida in the middle of the day. I drank <laughs> up a lot of my own profits, according to my family. Uh, later on in big life, uh, when I was, um, let's see, when I was around 50, I got interested in writing Hollywood scripts, trying to translate a lot of these ideas into movies that would be largely positive. Uh, you'd call them inspirational, but also sexy thrillers that would have the ideas embedded into them. Anyway, I got into a business partnership with Stephen Simon, who is a movie producer who had produced a, a movie called What Dreams May Come that I had admired and another one called Somewhere in Time that I admired. He also produced popcorn movies like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and things like that. But uh, I was interested in the spiritual side of his movie making. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so he and I got into business together and we pitched these movies to Hollywood studios and we got used to being basically thrown out every time. Nobody wants to watch inspirational movies. Nobody wants to watch spiritual cinema. 
you know, you guys are calling this thing spiritual cinema. You know, people watch movies. You know, anyway, we were thrown out of every major studio there was. I'm I'm exaggerating, of course. Some of them are <laughs> are very polite about the throwout. Uh, Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood is the only place on earth where you can die from encouragement. You know, people. Oh, I love that. I get back to you on that. You know, and then you never hear from them again. <laughs> You know, uh, that's a polite form of getting the kiss mm-hmm. of death. Oh, I love that. That's genius. So anyway, Stephen and I kind of gave up on the idea. One morning after meditation, I meditate every day. I'm a longtime TM or I, for 50 years now. I sit down and I meditate uh, 20 minutes twice a day. And I was doing my morning meditation one day around 5 or 5.30. And at the end of meditation, I was just enjoying that quiet, open, spacious thing that I get after meditation. And this idea popped into my head, 10-second idea. Oh, hot wire around Hollywood. Go directly to the people. So I called Stephen up. I said, I've got it. We go to the film festivals and buy up the kind of movies that nobody's Hollywood won't touch, some of which are the best movies made every year, by the way. And you don't see them unless you go to film festivals. And who has time these days and money to spend $1,500 to go to Telluride Film Festival for five weeks or for a week. So I said, we'll hotwire around Hollywood by buying up the best and, and they won't be expensive. Mm-hmm. And so we'll put them out on DVD to people around the world. And, you know, within a five minute period, we launched a business that we ran successfully for 25,000 people around the world for many years. And then we sold it for $10 million to a company because it got too big for us to run. And they ran it for many, many years. So anyway, it was a big success for everybody. But it came from that one little moment mm-hmm. of just kind of sitting in an open space. And part of my mind must have been working on it all the time because whoosh, there's the idea wow. that 10 seconds can turn into 10 million. Wow. And it's been happening since you were a kid. It happened with your watermelons. I mean, that is so incredible. I have this statement underlined too, because we're talking about getting kids outside, having more time to play, having more expansive time to just be and be in the moment. And you wrote, many of my inventions have been total failures in the financial sense, while others have gone on to make millions of dollars. They held the fascination of creating something from nothing Mm. and i think that's really the essence of childhood and play is that our kids are going outside and they have all of this practice if we give them time to create something out of nothing out of the ferns out of the grass out of the flowers i was just with my daughter the other day she's seven she's making me river stew and she's scooping water out of the river and adding all these little flowers but she's and she's selling it to me and it's this whole thing but she's creating something out of nothing and so you're taking that childlike quality and all the way through your life, creating something out of nothing because you've given yourself the space, you've given yourself the confidence. I mean, this is just a truly incredible, I know you hear it all the time, just a life-changing read. Which of your books has sold the most? It would be a toss-up between um, The Big Leap and Conscious Loving. Conscious mm-hmm. Loving had the blessing of Oprah being on Oprah with it the first time. So that right there sold a lot of books, bless her heart. And uh, same thing with the conscious heart later. Uh, But um, 
I would probably guess Conscious Loving has because it's been out a long time. It's been out wow. 30 years now. Wow. But The Big Leap still is a very hot bestseller, sells more than it did the first year it came out. So that can only happen through word of mouth. Unbelievable. It's fin- It's a life-changing book. Everyone should read it. Every parent should read it. Every teacher should read it. The Big Leap, Conquer Your Hidden Fear and Take Life to the Next Level. You have uh, 20 other books that people could read after that you've either authored or co-authored. People can find you on Hendrix.com. You're on social media. Share all sorts of great things, and I'll make sure I'll put all that in the show notes. Gay, I have just, what a treat. Thank you. I, I can't even really believe that I got this opportunity. I'm so thrilled about it. So thrilled to share you with our audience. And we always end our podcast with the same question. And that question is, what's a favorite memory from your childhood that was outside? Mm, Oh, gosh, great question. The first one that comes into my mind was working on the baseball diamond with my granddad. He would take me to work with him. My granddad was responsible for those baseball stadium and the field and every aspect of the it was a minor league baseball town Leesburg was and we had our own minor league baseball team and so my granddad uh, running the baseball stadium I spent a lot of my childhood in a baseball park and he would let me do things with him like um, you know how there's a white line from third base down to home plate well somebody puts a string there every day and whites that with lime. And that's how it's done. And so he would let me do that every day. And I thought this was the best grown up thing in the world. And then, (laughs) this is really great. On the way home, he would pop into this bar that had popcorn, free popcorn. And he would pop into it. They knew him there. That's where Mm -hmm. he went to drink his beer. And they would give him a little thing of free popcorn to bring out. He, he and I would walk home uh, eating popcorn. Oh, God bless Elmer Ray Canada, granddaddy. Wow. Uh, he was such an important part of my childhood. Thank wow. you for asking that question. It brings tears to my eyes. Wow, that is so beautiful. A lot of people talk about their grandparents when they answer that question. A whole lot of people do. It's such a gift to have gotten to talk to you. Thank you again. I'm super excited for your next book that's coming out in February. I'll definitely pre-order and maybe we'll get to talk to you about that one when it comes out. So Gay, thank you so much. And everyone's got to make sure they check out this book, The Big Leap, for sure. Be sure to spend a thousand hours outside before we talk next. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Gay. Really appreciate it. Hey, I wanted to mention something. Yes, yesterday you were talking about kids and everything. Somebody told me, a mother told me they had just put their kid in a three-week digital detox camp. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about that sort yeah. of thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I bet yeah. you have, yeah. Yes. I'd never heard of it before, but uh, he'd been there three days. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, needed. It's needed. And yeah. You see it through your book that you need that empty space. You have to have the, that time for the revelation to come. And if you're always on your screen or you're always on the computer, you don't have the space for that. So, yeah, I used to take my, uh, when my two little granddaughters uh, were here, they lived here, they, they live uh, on the East Coast now, but um, when, like, when uh, one of my little granddaughters, when she was six, took a dance class down at the local 
uh, community center. And I would pick her up after dance class and bring her home. That was kind of one of my little mm-hmm. granddad duties of the week. And uh, I used to love it. And it was such a trip to see 30 little six-year-olds streaming out of the class at the end of it, all looking at their phones, oh. you know? <laughs> yeah, it's taking away from kids more than I think we realize. And I think your book points to that and helps people to realize that life has got so many good parts to it and we got to go after it. Blessings to you. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.